This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When the ice breaks, when the hot shake in the town and the moxie in the winter. Day, everyone. Rick Cole here, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. Our show today, as is every episode, is brought to you by newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, and by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful Port Coburn, Ontario. They are the purveyors of the finest craft beers in the Niagara region and some amazing pub food. The weekly pizza and burger creations are truly to die for at the break wall. If you were with us for last week's show, you'll remember that we spent most of the time talking about the NHL's announcement that expansion franchises would be granted to the cities of Buffalo, New York and Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, This time around, we're looking at the week of December 8th to 15th, 1969, and we have a lot of news to get to. Instead of very long features like we did last week, we'll do more of the quick hits this time. There's just so much news to discuss. It just seems to be happening more and more as the season progresses. We will talk about a couple of things in detail, though. Uh, the main things, themes of the week, we might call. We'll talk about a couple of stories out of international hockey, Canada's involvement in the game at the international level, what the Russians were up to, and what seemed to be a threat to the World Championship Tournament that was to be held in Canada in March of 1970. We'll follow up on some arena issues in Buffalo, but not entirely the type of thing you might anticipate from an NHL expansion team, and we'll also look at the league's curious reaction uh, to the Buffalo, uh, Buffalo suggestion. And most of our time will be devoted to a plethora of news and notes, too many to be listed here, and we'll also have our personality of the week, someone that everybody who's a hockey fan knows of, but the angle we'll be looking at here is maybe something no one has heard of over the years. Now, it's usually at this time, I'd like to maybe add a personal touch to the show, something maybe to give the listeners a bit of insight into who I am and what I'm about in relation to something that was going on 50 years ago. So we'll do maybe a little bit of this as we lead into our first story. Uh, At this time, 50 years ago, it was kind of a bittersweet time for me, at least hockey-wise. Buffalo was coming to the NHL, so there was the joy and the high from the news we were getting more or less local hockey right in our backyards. But there were some downers for me as a hockey fan as well. It was easy to see, even for a diehard uh, cup half full guy like me, that my beloved Toronto Maple Leafs franchise was going to be in for some dark times. Now me, like everybody else in the area, was really rooting for Jim Gregory, our local guy from our hometown of Dunville, to succeed as general manager of the Maple Leafs. But Punch Imlac 
had left the new management team with woefully little with which to work. At least that's what we thought. And the more bothersome thing for me, what was looking like my favorite player throughout my early years of my hockey fandom, Dickie Duff, then of the Canadians, formerly of the Maple Leafs and Rangers, looked to be reaching the end of the line of a career that was uh, really, really a nice career to have. He would later join the Hall of Fame. But the whole thing was saddening to me, and I was kind of melancholy about that. Now, we'll talk a little more about Dick in an upcoming episode when he makes news uh, in the new year for a different reason. And I'll relate an amazing conversation I had with him a few years ago. But for now, a bit about the state of the Maple Leafs in 1969. Injuries were running rampant on the Toronto team in November. And the worst of it all was that the situation exposed the fact that the organization had virtually no depth at all. Players who were on the shelf, or at least the very least, have their abilities severely curtailed by injury were Ricky Lee with a knee, Britt Selby, a winger who had an eye injury, rookie defenseman Mike Pellick had a broken collarbone, Ron Ward, obtained in the offseason from WHL Vancouver, had a bad knee, Paul Henderson looked like he might need surgery for a pulled groin. Dave Keon had a thumb injury that just restricted his shooting and uh, stick handling to the point where he was very ineffective. Big defenseman Pat Quinn had wrecked the shoulder. And Brian Glennie, a big tall uh, defender whom the Leafs had sent to Canada's national team previous year, was back and promptly blew out a knee as well. Now that would be a long list, even for a talent-laden organization like Montreal. But for Toronto, this was truly a disaster. Many observers, pundits, fans blamed former GM coach Punch Imlach for the alarming paucity of talent on the team, and he does shoulder a fair bit of that blame. See, Punch traded away such young stars as Rod Sealing, Arnie Brown, Gary Unger, and Pete Stemkowski, all of whom at this point in time on the 1967-69-70 version of the team would be uh, having starring roles. But the real culprit in all this was President Stafford Smythe. He's a self-confessed hockey genius who wasn't really a genius by any stretch of the imagination. And if you read every statement he ever uh, made on the sport, he would give you the impression that he and only he alone knew what was best for his hockey team and he possessed the recipe for the secret sauce that would be the key to Toronto franchise's return to hockey glory. It was Smythe, you see, who was mainly responsible for the decline in the Toronto organization's farm system. The Leafs at one time had farm teams that spanned the entire continent, east to west, north to south. That wasn't... uh, the case anymore. Smythe was more interested in quick bucks and uh, not in hockey issues when he sold off the Rochester Americans American Hockey League team and most importantly their 19 professional players for about a half million bucks just after the the, uh, 1968 season that left Toronto with just one professional club the Tulsa Oilers of the Central Professional Hockey League. In that league, it's designated as a development circuit at this time. So the majority of players had to be under 23 years of age, and that would make them just a little raw for high-level competition in the NHL. 
It was as recent as the mid-1960s that the Leafs had farm teams in the American League with Rochester, the Western Hockey League, Victoria, the Central Pro League there with uh, Tulsa, and even in the Eastern League, and that was uh, uh, the Charlotte Checkers from whence President Coach John McClellan and goalie Marv Edwards came. McClellan and Edwards led the Charlotte team to several Eastern Hockey League championships, and there were a lot of players in that league that were just percolating, getting ready to make the next step to the AHL or even the NHL. Now, when you look at the roster of the names of players at Tulsa this season, it became painfully obvious that someone didn't want to spend money on scouting or at least ensuring the scouts were doing a good job. I won't bore you with a long list of uh, anonymous names, but many of these players did not have a good shot at making hockey's big league even after expansion. With the institution of the Universal Amateur Draft, it was completely evident that the Toronto owner didn't have a plan by which new talent would be identified and acquired. Not at this point, anyway. So when Imlac was sacked after the uh, last uh, goal was scored in the 1969 playoffs, we hoped that our local hero Jim Gregory would be given free reign to rebuild the organization and stockpile the young talent that would certainly power the team to prominence. Hopefully before the 1970s was going to get too far along. Little did we know about the storm clouds on the horizon for our Leafs, both on the ownership side and in the guise of a rival hockey loop that would hurt the Toronto club pretty much more than any other team in hockey. Also this week, we have a lot of international hockey news, and uh, that was the troubling as well for me. Some of the rumblings were uh, coming down the pipe that uh, we might lose the hockey tournament, the international world championships that were going to be held in Winnipeg and Montreal in March. The reasons, well, you can probably guess them. Now, the week started off with a tidy little story about the return of a legendary Russian hockey coach to their bench. Anatoly Tarasov is who we're speaking of, and you will remember him from the early 60s and what a hockey genius he was touted to be. Well, the flamboyant coach uh, regained his position after he endured a public scolding by the government, and right at this point in time, he appeared to have complete control over the national hockey team once again. Tarasov got in trouble last spring after he held up a nationally televised game in Moscow, Russia televised, that is, for more than 30 minutes when he disputed uh, a referee's call about something or other that happened in the game. Soviet newspapers and sports officials openly criticized him publicly for delaying the game. He was disciplined and stripped of his elite, quote, merited coach of the USSR title. Then a short time later, on June 3rd to be exact, an administrative organ to supervise the Soviet national hockey teams was set up and Tarasov was listed only as one of several coaches without mention of his previous position as coach of the main national team. This was seen as another public slap and it appeared he had been permanently demoted from the number one job. Observers at the current International Hockey Tournament in Moscow now have noted that 
Tarasov personally controls the team from the bench. He chooses substitutions and direct strategy. His title as merited coach was also restored with no fanfare this autumn. We're wondering why Tarasov was brought back to the uh, Russian team. Could it be that they're willing to put up with a few of his antics because his strategy and his motivational skills are so good that when they play the vaunted Canadian pros, as they eventually will, he they think he is the guy that will lead the team to win against Canada. Now, just a couple of days later, there were several newspapers, wire services, that reported what they sort of shaped as a small story, that there was a distinct possibility that Canada could lose the right to stage the World Hockey Championships in 1970. Uh, That possibility was raised by none other than Bunny Ahern, head of the International Ice Hockey Federation. Ahern told a Swedish newspaper that Canada is going to have to agree to use non-professionals in the tournament. Now, you may remember, we've talked about this several times, that in a meeting last year, Canada was told they could use up to nine professionals. But it turns out uh, a little while later that nine professionals meant nine players who were maybe minor pros who had never played in the National Hockey League or had regained their amateur status. As it turns out, Ahern was saying that the uh, International Olympic Committee, headed by one fella named Avery Brundage, and if you were around at the time, you will remember he ruled the Olympics like an iron fist while lining his pockets. Not too much different from today, except that they made sure every single performer in the Olympics was a Simon Pure Amateur. But all these guys were doing in the background was making money off the bank, the backs of people who did not get paid for their efforts. At the same time, Russia was disputing the scheduling that had come out for the tournament in which they played on back-to-back days three times, just like several other teams. But the Russians, they didn't like it. Now, Earl Dawson, the president of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, said that the Soviet Union informed the CAHA that it would take part in the tournament only if the requested changes to the schedule were made in the Winnipeg portion, and that's from March 22nd to 29. The first half of the championship tournament was to be staged in Montreal from March 12th to 20th. Dawson said that a telegram was sent to the Russians uh, informing them that their request was not acceptable and that the CAHA is standing firm on its game schedule. Now, this means that the Russians are either going to come or they're not. If they don't show up because of the scheduling problem, then guess what? The tournament's uh, luster will be drastically diminished. So it seemed obvious at this time that the Russians really didn't want to play in Canada. And as it turned out, we found they didn't really want to play against pros, even those at the minor league level. Some hurried conferences were taking place in Europe. I don't believe Canada was even invited to a few of these meetings. But we know why these meetings were being held. It was to get Canada back in line. A couple days later, 
Ahern said that Canada would have to play without pro players or lose the right to organize the world championships. Now, Ahern was quoted in the Swedish newspapers that uh, started to carry the story before, saying that the problem was the International Olympic Committee, who felt that if the Simon Pure Amateurs from Europe were playing against former professionals from Canada, that their Olympic status would be tainted and they would not be able to participate in the 1972 Olympics. Avery Brundage, the president of the IOC, made it quite clear, Ahern said, if Canada uses their pros, all participating teams will have to line up in the B squads in Sapporo, Japan's Winter Olympics, as the players playing together or against pros lose their Olympic amateur status. Now, Ahern, kind of sounding like he was being conciliatory, said he would call for an extra European hockey meeting in early January in Geneva, Switzerland, and they would discuss the matter. The people who will take part in the meeting will be Russia, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, Finland, Austria, East and West Germany, no Canada. Ahern went on to say, I know that all the nations want to keep their Olympic status. That's more important to them. So already I can say that Canada has to withdraw their pros or lose the world championship. Do you really think the fix was in here and Canada was being led down the garden path by even be led to believe that they could host a tournament? It sure sounded like it to us here. Now, Sweden has been mentioned as a reserve site if Canada does not withdraw its pros and the tournament has to be moved. Those discussions obviously have been going on behind the backs of the Canadians who were never even informed of this possibility until right now, just a couple months before the tournament slated to begin. Now, the interesting part is Canada at this time is participating in a tournament in Moscow. And in that tournament, Canada is using Billy Harris, Brian Conacher, and Barry McKenzie, all three players who have very recently played in the National Hockey League and have not really received their amateur status. Does this mean that the teams and the players that participated in that tournament, including the Soviet national team, will now lose their Olympic status? Or is it just for the tournament in Canada where this takes place? You can't have it both ways, but this is what the IOC plans on doing. And it's going to hurt Canada hockey, and it's going to hurt the tournament and Canada's status um, in the world sporting uh, group. Now, the crazy part about all this is the Brundage bombshell came down almost exactly at the same time as the Russians said, hey, you know what? We'll play whatever schedule you want. We'll play because we want to make things work for you. And yet they knew when they capitulated to the schedule demands that Canada had put upon them that this was going to blow up in their face anyway because the Canadians weren't going to be able to use the pros. So now what it boils down to is, is there going to be a world tournament where pros are allowed or they're not? At this point, we don't have the answer. Buck Hool, who had been recently appointed the general manager of Canada's national team, had this to say, who needs whom the most? Does hockey need the Olympics or do the Olympics need hockey? 
Does Canada need the World Hockey Championships or does the World Hockey need Canada? Buck said in Japan, they're building a new arena to look after the Olympic Hockey Tournament for 1972 in Sapporo. If there's no hockey, somebody will commit Harry Carey. That's Buck's words. Hockey is a big money maker and it carries the Winter Olympics. Last year, Brundage had to back down on the South Africa issue in the Olympics, and he's fouled up in the skiing picture before, too. Now, Poole Hool wanted to know exactly what the definition of an amateur was. Brundage said, We are only concerned with the Olympics, which are confined to amateurs, but he would not define what an amateur is. Now, he said the definition is drawn up by the countries which belong to the IOC. The rules are in the Constitution, and it doesn't matter what I think when he was asked for his definition. There's a lot more to go in this story. Uh, it doesn't look good right now, and I could see that Canada could even dis disassociate itself from international hockey if we're not allowed to use our best players. Myself, I'm not a big fan of international hockey, never have been, and never will be, simply because we never got to use our best players. Even now, 50 years later, in the World Championships, we don't use our best players. Who do we send over there? We send over guys whose teams didn't go, go well in the playoffs. They're not our best. There should be no conditions, just playing best against best every several years, maybe in the Olympics, and we see who is the best players in. But you don't do it the way they were doing it then. And you really don't do it the way it is now either. It's not a true world championships. And they shouldn't call it that. Now we'll move on to the uh, arena issue in Buffalo. And this is a really prickly situation that a lot of people didn't anticipate when uh, the city of Buffalo was finally awarded a National Hockey League franchise. On the top, it looked like a simple decision. The new Buffalo team, maybe they'll be called the Bisons, maybe they'll be called the Beauties, who knows? We don't know what they're going to be called yet. We're probably going to play in Memorial Auditorium. The arena seats between uh, nine and 10,000, a great intimate venue for hockey. I love going there for American League games. Anyway, the plan was, according to the uh, conditions imposed upon the franchise by the National Hockey League, to have that arena expanded to 15,000 uh, fans seating by raising the roof. The problem was, in Erie County, where the city of Buffalo is located, a move was afoot to build a new stadium to house the National Football League Buffalo Bills and possibly a Major League Baseball franchise. Now, the whole complex was going to be a dome stadium, and if you've been in Buffalo in the winter, you know exactly why the dome stadium was needed. So the plan was to build the dome stadium out in the village of Lancaster, which is out near the Buffalo Airport, not far from downtown Buffalo, not really a long drive, and out where you could have adequate parking and build a stadium with no encumbrances from uh, the old infrastructure that the city of Buffalo would have. The problem was 
the stadium was also going to be used to house the National Hockey League team. It was going to complete be a completely configurable building, which would be converted from football to hockey within a couple of hours with moving the, the seating arrangements around. Well, guess what? Clarence Campbell, president of the National Hockey League, just put a kibosh on all that. He said, no, you're playing in Memorial Auditorium. You're not playing in the Dome Stadium that is proposed. The other fly in the ointment was now that if the uh, Buff City of Buffalo or Erie County, I guess you'd really want to say, couldn't get the, this hockey uh, arrangement done, they may not build the stadium at all, which ca- could cause the football team to move as Ralph Wilson, the owner of the Buffalo Bills, is an absentee owner, and I don't think he really cares where the team is housed. And a baseball team just wouldn't come to Buffalo. Uh, the uh, rock pile, as they call it, the Buffalo Baseball Stadium, as will lose their International uh, Baseball League franchise very soon. It was not suitable for anything. You may be, remember the uh, Buffalo Stadium. It was the venue where they filmed the movie The Natural. So anyway... The plan was to bring Clarence Campbell to Buffalo, which he eventually did. He would meet with the Erie County's legislatures, who unanimously, by the way, approved of the uh, Dome Stadium deal. And they would discuss with him exactly how the stadium would be built, how the configuration could be changed from, say, football in an early afternoon game to a hockey game that night at 8 o'clock, and how it would be best for everybody for the new hockey team to play out in Lancaster. Now, this is where it got kind of goofy. After bringing Campbell in for the meeting, he said that he was impressed with the uh, attention to detail and the design of the proposed Buffalo building and that it would be okay for the National Hockey League team to play in the Dome Stadium And it looked like everything was going to be just ducky. We don't know who got to Campbell or exactly who was the uh, alleged mastermind behind the plan. But two days later, Campbell came out and said, no dome stadium for a Buffalo hockey team. They must play in Memorial Auditorium or forfeit the franchise. Now, Seymour Knox, the third, the driving force behind the the Buffalo NHL franchise, was not about to lose the NHL team. Here's what uh, tell uh, a telegram that Campbell sent to the Buffalo group said, "The National Hockey League has concluded its investigation of the revised proposal for accommodating hockey in the Dome Stadium." and has decided that it will not modify the terms of the award of the conditional franchise awarded to your company in the Buffalo Territory insofar as they relate to the use of Memorial Auditorium. That effectively killed the Dome Stadium, and Memorial Auditorium was going to have to be the site of the Buffalo NHL franchise. Now, we know what happened. Buffalo got their team. Memorial Auditorium got a new roof 22 feet higher than the old one and seats about 6,000 new seats to bring it up to over 15,000. It was a great place to watch hockey game. And uh, I enjoyed those early seasons in Buffalo. 
Uh, the sad part was Buffalo eventually did get a stadium out near Lancaster, Orchard Park to be exact, uh, a great big huge football stadium with no roof. And if you've been to a Bills game, there's a lot of days that you kind of wish they'd managed to get a roof on that place. And now we get to the news and notes for the week. There's plenty of stuff going on in the NHL in this week. Uh, On December 8th, we learned that the British Columbia Amateur Hockey Association suspended a player for life from any hockey competition within that province. The fellow's name was Dennis Oakland, and he played for the Port Coquitlam Heaters of the Western Amateur Hockey League. He was banned for life for an incident in which he swung his stick at a goal judge in a game at Chilliwack on November 15th of this year. Now, Oakland had joined Port Coquitlam this season after sitting out a previous two-year suspension for some violent matters on the ice. This guy just doesn't learn, and he's the top of guy, type of guy, I'm sorry, that we just don't need in our sport. Good riddance to Dennis Oakland. And our Maple Leafs made some uh, player moves on this week. First of all, they recalled left winger Wayne Carlton from Phoenix of the Western Hockey League, where they'd sent him earlier in the year to get a lot of uh, playing time and play himself into shape. Wayne, if you remember, was at the Team Canada training camp and smashed up an elbow, and he wasn't ready to go when training camp finished. So they sent him down to the Western League where he could play himself into shape and maybe find a scoring eye, which so far had eluded him in his NHL career. Well, they played him against Pittsburgh in two weekend games on the 6th and 7th of December and then promptly traded him to the Boston Bruins in a straight-up swap for center Jimmy Harrison, another young guy. He's only 22. Now, Carlton, he's a big left winger with a stride reminiscent of Frank Mahovlich, and he had been long touted as the next big Toronto superstar But it just never happened for Wayne in Toronto. It's too bad because he looked like he was going to be a big one. He suffered a variety of injuries over his career, and now he's hoping for a fresh start in Boston. Harrison is a graduate of the Western Canada Junior League. He's a center. He's got a bit of an edge. He's a big guy, and he's got really good hands. With Boston this year, Harrison had three goals and one assist in 23 games, but he was used rather sparingly. Boston very strong down the middle. Well, strong everywhere right now. He's hoping to get a regular shift with the Leafs and start scoring some goals. Now, here's one that uh, I don't like to report at all, and this is a very ominous news item. Superstar Bruins defenseman Bobby Orr injured his left knee once again in a game against the North Stars. He took a check from North Star's J.P. Parise in the second period of a December 7th game, and he left for the dressing room. Uh, Didn't come back in the second period, but he did return to the bench in the third. But right away in the first couple of shifts, he blocked the shot with the same knee, went to the bench, stayed there for the rest of the night, didn't move. I don't know whether Harry Sinden didn't want to play him or if Bobby was in too much pain to participate, but he was not back on the ice that night. 
the Bruins were tight-lipped in the following days about the condition of Orr's knee. No one would said a thing. Uh, Boston writers staked out local hospitals. They called different uh, physiotherapists that they knew. No one was saying anything about Bobby Orr's knee. You have to stay tuned on this one. We're not sure where this story was going to be heading at this point in time. Now, here's an interesting note from a situation that's been going along all season in Los Angeles. The Kings have called up goalie Wayne Rutledge from the American Hockey League Springfield Farm Team. Now, you may remember Wayne took over as the number one goalie for the Kings in their very first season, 1967-68, from Hall of Famer or future Hall of Famer, I should say, goalie Terry Sawchuk. Uh, Wayne had turned out to be a really good goaltender, but this season he was injured in training camp and was sent to the American Hockey League to work himself into shape. Uh, Wayne had undergone surgery for uh, calcium deposits on his right thigh. It was a painful operation. Took him a while to get back to playing shape. So Jerry Desjardins, who last year was a Rookie of the Year contender in the NHL, he took over the, the number one job last year. He has played every minute of every game for every Kings contest so far this season. The backup was a young fellow by the name of Claude Hardy. Uh, He hadn't played at all, and he was sent down to Springfield to make room for Rutledge. So Claude Hardy spent nearly 30 games in the NHL without seeing the ice even once. That's a curious record, and uh, it's got to be a... Tough, uh, bitter pill to swallow for Claude. We're hoping he gets back to the NHL at some point. The Kings obviously saw something in him in that they had him on their roster for as long as they did. Now, Desjardins will probably welcome getting uh, Rutledge back because he's got to be feeling the uh, a little bit of fatigue playing every game at this point in the season. Wayne got into a game right after getting called up. Didn't go so well. The Blues hammered the Kings 8-1. Wayne played every minute of that game, gave up all eight goals. The Detroit Red Wings made a couple of player moves this week as well. They sent forward Rick McCann to their Central Professional Hockey League farm team in Fort Worth, Texas, to make room for another rookie that they brought on, a former All-American center for the University of Michigan named Alan Carlander. McCann appeared in 18 games for the Wings, but saw limited service. Carlander is an American, a Michigan native, and is expected to be one of the first homegrown players in the 60s that will be developed by the Wings, and he looks like he could be a good one. The Wings are going to give him every chance to excel with their club this time. Okay, now you gotta you got to wonder about this one here. Uh, the Bruins have a young forward named Wayne Cashman. Big guy, skates really well. He's tough. He is really uh, rough in the corners, digs the puck out. Looks like the type of kid that, uh, with a good scoring center, could really be successful in the NHL. That is if he can uh, keep himself in line. The Bruins have indefinitely suspended Wayne Cashman for repeated violations of the NHL team's training rules. Uh, If you understand what that means, it means he's staying out after curfew too much. Wayne likes to party, apparently. 
Now, Cashman, this in the past few weeks, had become a regular. He was playing left wing on Boston's third line, centered by Derek Sanderson. He also spent time on right wing as well. Now, Boston general manager Milt Schmidt would not give any details or specific reasons for the suspension. Uh, Lots of people trying to do some digging here, but even the Boston hockey writers had no information on exactly what transgressions Cashman had committed in order to get himself basically kicked off the team. Stay tuned on this one. I'm sure there'll be more of this as well. And staying with the Bruins, in a rare display of wisdom by ownership of a National Hockey League team, the Bruins have filed a motion with the National Hockey League Rules Committee to force all players in the league to wear helmets in all preseason, regular, and playoff games. Finally, in 1969, somebody's getting smart that the head is the most important part of the body and least protected. Now, the Bruins chairman of the board, Weston Adams, filed the motion with National Hockey League referee-in-chief Scotty Morrison. Adams requested that if the rule is passed, it becomes effective not later than January 15th, 1970. We'll have to see how the league deals with this. Given the archaic thinking in the other 11 NHL cities, well, now 13, I can't see the rule passing, although it would be easily the best thing the NHL would have done in many years. Stay tuned on this one as well. Everybody wonders what's next with NHL expansion. You hear one NHL governor saying they're going to go into New York City uh, for another team. Another NHL governor says they want to go into the South and places like Atlanta. Somebody else says even more in the Midwest. Here's what NHL Clarence Campbell says. He feels the league should target the United States Midwest for its next round of expansion. Campbell's forecast counterstatements made by people such as Montreal's David Molson, who pinpoints a European uh, division as figuring in the third uh, round of expansion for the NHL. Campbell said the next time expansion takes place, it could be very well include Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, and Kansas City. So that was the two teams Campbell felt were ready to come into the NHL whenever the league would expand again. Most observers feel that would be 1974. Campbell said, I think both cities, Dallas and Kansas City, are legitimate places for expansion. Uh, Campbell also said, and this is a little curious, I'm also importuned by people who want franchises in Atlanta, Georgia, and Washington, D.C., Now, when you think about it, Atlanta has really no great hockey uh, history. And to have them in the league really didn't make a lot of sense to many of us at the time. And Washington? Well, Washington's had a good hockey history, no doubt about that, but never really succeeded at the minor pro level. And you got to wonder how they would work out in the NHL. Now, Neither of these places have NHL-caliber arenas as well. Campbell said he expected new arenas would be eventually built to house the big league hockey teams. Now, Campbell, at the same time, 
defended the $6 million price tag that Buffalo and Vancouver were charged for their new price tags. He said that uh, all the six Western Division franchises were worth a lot more than the $2 million that they paid in 1967. In fact, Campbell said that the $2 million that the original expansion teams were charged was a bargain compared to what they're worth now. In fact, Campbell said the St. Louis franchise is now worth more than some of those in the Eastern Division, but he wouldn't name which ones because he didn't want to tick off the owners of those teams. Now, in a related development, the New York Rangers general manager, Emil Francis, revealed that his club would seek to move its American Hockey League franchise to the 14,000-seat Nassau County Coliseum, which was now under construction in Garden City, New York, a suburb in the heavily populated Long Island area. The rink would be ready for operation in 1971-72. You remember the Rangers franchise at this point in time was in Buffalo, and the Bisons would be no longer with the, the new NHL team coming. Francis said, in explaining his reasoning, the trend is to have your farm team on your doorstep. I think a team can operate a profit on Long Island, particularly since games are sold out there in the Eastern League just about every night. Of course, in Long Island, they've had some pretty colorful characters in the Eastern League. John Brophy, a fellow who uh, is legendary for his temper tantrums and abuse of players and officials, comes to mind. Oh boy, here's a here's a interesting story. A dispute is brewing between the Toronto Maple Leafs and the new Vancouver expansion team already. It seems that last summer, when Toronto traded youngsters Brad Selwood and Rennie Robert to the Western Hockey League Canucks, for Ron Ward, the center who uh, was one of the top scorers in the Western League, the Maple Leafs retained the right of repurchasing the pair at the end of this season. Now, both kids have shown that they have NHL potential, Selwood with the Canucks, and Robert is playing in the American League Rochester Americans. Uh, Selwood seems like he could be a really good NHL defenseman, and the Leafs are going to need a lot of help there as their aging defense is going to have a turnover very shortly. Uh, it seems likely Toronto will try and uh, want these kids back at the end of the season. Now that's where the problem begins. Joe Crozier, he's the general manager of the Vancouver operation, claims that there's no such condition on the deal and that these players belong outright to Vancouver. Problem is, the NHL League Registry has a deal there, and the paperwork, uh, as described by Toronto, is in their records. Crozier says not to worry, everyone. We'll work it out by the end of the season. Now, this one is another one of those types of stories we hate to report, but it is news, and you got to report it. Jean-Guy Landry, he's a native of Moncton, New Brunswick, died from injuries he received when he crashed into a goal post in a hockey game in which he was playing for the Braintree Hawks of the amateur New England Hockey League. Landry was 28. He lived in nearby Waltham, Massachusetts for the past 10 years. Now what happened was he struck his ear and the side of his head on a goal post after he made a pass and then he lost an edge and just slid into the net. He went to the dressing room under his own power, well, with some assistance, no stretcher needed, 
and he was talking to people in the dressing room but began to feel poorly and he was apparently bleeding. He was fully conscious when a police cruiser took him to the local hospital and there he passed away. Now the owner of the the Braintree uh, team, Jerry uh, Ridvey, said that Landry passed away at the Kearney Hospital in Boston when a blood clot uh, became lodged somewhere in his skull. Landry was not wearing a helmet at the time of the incident. And again, it was just a freak accident. He wasn't hit by anyone. He made a pass, made a turn, lost an edge. He apparently was going at a pretty good clip and banged his head on the goalpost. You know how they tell you in Philadelphia they'd even boost Santa Claus? Well, you know, that's not far from the truth. Here's an interesting story involving Philadelphia hockey reporter Ed Conrad. Now, Ed is a uh, unabashed flyer supporter. He is uh, a prolific writer with the Philadelphia Daily News, has almost daily columns on the flyers, and puts out a lot of interesting information, and he generates a lot of fan interest. But here's what happened this week. Ed was critical of the Flyers for their choice of music following the playing of O Canada for their recent game against the Maple Leafs. The Flyers played a rendition of Kate Smith singing God Bless America. Conrad said that the song sounded great, but still, it's not the U.S. National Anthem, and he's wondering why the heck they would do this. He could see no reason for playing of that song over the Star-Spangled Banner. The other Philadelphia newspaper, The Inquirer, they got a hold of Lou Scheinfeld. He's the Flyers' vice president in charge of special effects. If you need a vice president to be in charge of special effects, it's Lou. Now, Lou said that since the Flyers won against the Leafs when they played that uh, song, he's probably going to come back with Kate in the next Philadelphia home game as well. Scheinfeld said that it was just simply a case of them wanting to change things up And after all, he said, God Bless America is a great song. Kate Smith is a great vocalist. A a little bit of news out of Vancouver this week. And I'm not sure this is how you start off your National Hockey League franchise, especially when you're an absentee owner like Metacor in a city in like Vancouver, where the hockey history is rich and tradition actually means something. Lyman Walters, he's the vice president of Metacor, says he isn't sure that the name Canucks conveys the message he has in mind for Vancouver's forthcoming National Hockey League entry. Walters said Canucks is an outdated slang expression that I don't particularly like. I'd prefer a name which identified the team as coming from Vancouver and British Columbia. And apparently, according to Lyman, Canucks doesn't do that, even though many teams have a rich history with that name. Now, Lyman did walk back a little bit when he immediately got a lot of telephone calls when this word comes out. And he says, we don't want people to think we're coming in here and changing everything just for the sake of change. If we get a strong indication from the hockey fans that they want to retain the name Canucks, the name will stay. Otherwise, 
We'll come up with a new one, but not through any silly name the team contest. Now, maybe that was a shot at Buffalo because word has come out of Western New York that that is exactly how the name will be selected for the new team in Buffalo. And now it's time for our personality of the week. And this week we are featuring someone who is uh, known to everyone. To me, the greatest player ever to lace on a pair of skates in the National Hockey League. And that is Bobby Orr. But we're not going to do our our typical uh, profile of the player. I, I found something this week that was really, really interesting. And I wanted to do this as well. Two future Hall of Fame hockey players were interviewed by Vancouver sports columnist Eric Whitehead, uh, Andy Bathgate, and Walter Babe Pratt, both at the time making their homes in Vancouver, were spoken to about the uh, virtues of young Mr. Orr. Now that's interesting because Bobby doesn't play any games in Vancouver, at least up to this point in his career. I think what uh, Eric Whitehead wanted to do was give Vancouver fans a true indication of what they could expect when Bobby Orr is going to come next season with the Bruins to Vancouver to play NHL games. Now, we'll just give you some of the comments that Bathgate and Pratt made about Orr, and they did provide some really good insight into what makes Bobby the incredible hockey player he is in 1969. He started out with Pratt, and Pratt began by saying, Orr is one of the few players in the NHL who was worth every cent of those $7, $8 tops. He, that's the price of the tickets Babe's talking about. He's everything they say he is. Pratt agrees that it's uh, somewhat like claiming an imperfection in the Hope Diamond. He reserves the right to note some flaws in the defensive play of the young Mr. Magnificent. Babe said, you can take nothing away from the overall result of Orr's talents, but as a defenseman assigned to prevent goals, apart from scoring them or setting them up, Bobby can be had. He was had twice on Saturday by the Canadians' Ralph Backstrom, both times Montreal scored. Now, the only thing uh, flawed there with, with Babe's argument is, is Bobby assigned to prevent goals? I think Bobby is assigned to play the game and do whatever he can do best If you score more than you prevent, you're going to win the game. Babe went on to say Bobby's weakness, and it's his only one, is that he gets too tired carrying the puck into the goal area and he can't defend properly. He's so aggressive that he sometimes becomes a sort of extra center man, and that means you are short one defenseman. Certainly he makes up for much of this with his scoring and his assists, but you'll notice that Boston is still just a third-place club right now, and they get an awful lot of goals scored against them. Babe went on to say that the type of offense and the type of playing scheme that the Bruins employ at this time is unlikely to produce many Stanley Cup wins in the near or distant future. Babe explained why he thinks the way he does. He says, I got my early NHL schooling with the Rangers under Lester Patrick, legendary Lester Patrick. I guess I was an offensive-minded defenseman then, as Orr is now, but Lester had his own ideas of how defense should be played, 
and I haven't heard many people quarrel with his hockey brains. He gave me the green light to rush, but not to overcommit myself. There was a standing order that when I carried the puck over the opponent's blue line, I had to get rid of it, set up a play, get it over to the point. That was and still is a traditional style of defense play in the National Hockey League. Now here's Pratt's consensus on what Bobby Orr is. He is absolutely great, but the smarter players and the smarter teams will make him pay defensively by trapping him out of position. He is a superstar in spite of it, and you just can't quarrel with that. Now, Andy Bathgate at this time was a future Hall of Famer. He was a superstar with the New York Rangers, won a Stanley Cup finally with the Maple Leafs in 1964, went to Pittsburgh in the expansion draft, and was winding down his career in the Western Hockey League with the Canucks. Andy Andy enjoyed, just loved living in Vancouver, apparently. In fact, he had turned down a chance to play in the NHL with Pittsburgh this season because he felt he enjoyed it in Vancouver that much more. Here's what Andy added to what Babe Pratt had to say. Yes, he can be trapped and caught out of position, and this is going to cost Boston a lot of goals, but he's going to score and set up a heck of a lot more. He breaks in toward the net better than 85% of the NHL centers right now. He busts in so strongly that he always takes a couple of defenders with him, leaving men coming in late behind him unprotected, and this is what gives him so many assists. These guys pick up loose pucks and jam them past a goaltender who's probably screened because there's Orr and a couple of defensemen hanging all over him in front of the net. He's strong, although not as strong as Gordie Howe, but then again, who is? He leans on you coming in and just powers his way through a lot like Gordy. But he's a tremendous skater with a great shift and a fine, fast shot. And he skates the way all the superstars do, with his head up, looking, watching, set to take advantage of any break or bad move. Or may not be the complete classic defenseman, at least not yet, but he is certainly a classic hockey player. And this is how you have to look at him. Players like Babe Pratt or Doug Harvey were probably better defensemen in that so-called classic tradition. They both excelled in the art of drawing the defender in and then passing off to start a break on goal, but Orr just does it all in a different way. And the way he does it, just busting through and firing away, is the way fans seem to like it nowadays anyway. Bobby Hull, who blasts away from any distance, is a prime example of this. A hundred points for Orr this season is what he's on pace for? I think he'll hit 80, Andy said. Now this prediction of a points total that was considered somewhat less incredible until this year is a fair measure of a superstar's regard for this new one in Boston. That's what Andy Bathgate and Babe Pratt think of uh, the great young Bobby Orr at this point in time in his career. We'll probably feature Orr a lot more times in our future podcasts, but this is what we wanted to pass on to you this week. Well, boys and girls, that's the show for this week. Uh, Another busy week, lots of news, lots of information, and laying groundwork for bigger stories that are going to happen on down the road. So what did we learn this week? 
Well, we learned that it seems the rules are still stacked against Canada when it comes to international hockey play, and it makes you wonder why we even bother at all. They don't want us there. They don't want our best players there. And if we can't play our best, why do we go? We learned that the city of Buffalo is hoping to build a sports complex, Dome Stadium, that will house hockey, baseball, football, and basketball. And they want the NHL team to play there. But the NHL, for whatever reason that you can figure out, doesn't like the idea. We learned that even the greats of the past and present are in awe of young Bobby Orr. And that while they point out perceived flaws in his game, we've learned that his overall talent more than compensates for any of these so-called deficiencies in the way he does the game. Next week, we'll return with more news and notes from the world of hockey. Some of the stories we're going to be working on include the Kings firing of coach Hal Laco, their first-year mentor who just couldn't get the team going. We'll learn more on what appears to be the impasse developing between Hockey Canada and the International Ice Hockey Federation over the use of professional players in international hockey, and we'll take a closer look at helmets and why the pro players are reticent to don protective headgear. Sort of a follow-up on this week's story where the Bruins are trying to get everybody to wear helmets. Stay tuned on this one. Now, the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Our introductory music comes to us courtesy of the Rural Alberta Advantage, and other musical pieces throughout the show are by Andy Cole as well. Our stories are compiled with files from the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey, and at our WordPress site at Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And if you like good music and good conversation, uh, while you're waiting for our podcast to return next week, have a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast by Andy Cole. Each week, Andy and a guest have an interesting conversation and also write and perform a completely new musical piece. It's a lot of fun and very enjoyable. Thanks so much for joining us this week. We'll see you next time. When the ice breaks, when the hot shakes.